It's Wednesday, December 14th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I can't get enough of this SBF story. This guy, Samuel Bankman Freed, arrested yesterday, never wore pants below the knee. In 2020, there was an article in Vox about a group called Mind the Gap. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit to tell you who Mind the Gap is. Mind the Gap is a group, a political donation group that was headed and masterminded by the Freed of the Samuel Bankman Freed name, Barbara Freed, SBF's mom. I guess we would just call her BF. And what BF and those in Mind the Gap tried to do was funnel money to Democrats, but not in races where they needed it the most, in races, and this was their genius, where they needed it the second most. An article in Vox marvels at their technique inside the secretive Silicon Valley group that has funneled over $20 million to Democrats. This was written in January of 2020. They look back on their 2018 successes given to such candidates as Lauren Underwood, actually one of my favorite members of Congress. And the subhead of that article is, there's a reason you haven't heard of Mind the Gap. It's raison d'etre is stealth. But there's another reason we hadn't heard of it, because no one reported out where they were getting their money from a crypto scam from Samuel Bankman Freed, giving it to his mom, the Stanford professor, just like his dad, Joseph Bateman, also a Stanford professor. I feel very sorry for these parents. They enjoyed the status and wealth uh, that their son, I guess they thought, honestly accumulated. But also they have to be so frustrated that up until last week, SBF was doing interviews with the media when he maybe should have been shutting up in advance of his arrest, doing interviews where Unusual Wales, a podcast and website, asked him, Sam, are you playing a video game as we speak? Indeed he was with no regard to the potential legal implications of what was about to befall him and the reputational and monetary implications that would be visited upon his parents. Mind the gap indeed among the charges that Samuel Bankman Freed faces is an accusation of making illegal campaign contributions. On the show today, I shall spiel about the world not being quite so awful as I'm going to say everyone from every tech reporter to SNL would have you believe this default nihilism. I find it annoying. It's weird. It's a weird kind of situation where I'm advocating happiness by being annoyed at those who aren't. But first... On yesterday's program, I was joined by Nina Totenberg, NPR's iconic Supreme Court reporter. We talked about her friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Today, it's part two of that interview. We discussed the craft of covering the Supreme Court and her thoughts about the future of that institution. Nina Totenberg, up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Nina Totenberg is NPR's legal affairs correspondent and author of Dinners with Ruth, a memoir of the power of friendships. 
On yesterday's gist, Nina deflected a question by noting that people tune into her reporting not to hear her opinions, but to gain knowledge of what the justices are thinking and why they're thinking that way. Fair enough. But in this part of the interview, I started by taking her up on the premise that while listeners might not tune in for her opinion per se, they certainly love her presentational style, especially when she used to take a transcript and then perform all the roles of the different justices. Chief Justice Roberts, I had understood you had no voters who had actually been prevented from voting. Answer, that's because we challenged the law before any election actually occurred. Now we have such voters. Justice Scalia, did you have anyone who said, I don't have an ID and won't be able to get one? Answer, yes. Chief Justice Roberts, even though the state provides free ID? Answer, yes. The state Now that they have the pretty good audio, you don't do this anymore. And, and I wonder a few things before. about it. Uh, a, did you call those sort of scripts anything in particular? Was there a was there a code name for them? No. Did you like no? Did you like doing those performances? Um, you know, it was a performance of necessity because yes. there was no audio. So I would go outside, interview a couple of protagonists if they were willing outside to have a couple of bites of tape at the top, and then I would have to deal with the fact that there was this great drama I had just witnessed, and I had to tell people about it. And so I sort of, I, I stylized it in a way. And I'm going to tell you a big secret. Okay. If you polled the Supreme Court press corps, including the broadcast press corps, the vote as to whether or not to have broadcast arguments would be almost unanimously against it. Uh -huh. For the simple reason that it makes our job so much harder. Because we don't get a we don't have a transcript for a long time. So you come back now; these arguments go t two and three times as long as they used to, um, and you come running back to the office. You don't have a transcript, and you're trying to find sound bites and cut them small enough so that it works. And it is like ten times more difficult than sitting down and you can see you nobody really thinks this is a perfect quote and you see what what are the good moments of the argument and you recreate it in your own voice using the most important phrases but not but getting rid of all the legal mumbo jumbo that's in between and right. that that was that was it. I could finish that by three thirty. <laughs> <laughs> when you portrayed specific justices, did you consciously or unconsciously embody them? Did you know their mannerisms and try to pronounce a, uh, a an Alito declaration a little bit different from a Rehnquist dec declaration? Let's say a little bit. I mean, Rehnquist was rather laconic in his delivery, and and Scalia was almost always very. You know, very, very passionate in a way, Op operatic, or, yeah. yeah, operatic, <laughs> dramatic, yeah. whatever yeah. you want. Yeah. And you know, you you could. I still do do this occasionally. I I am able to convey that yet more by saying that, um, you know, Justice Kennedy used to sort of tip off something when he would get really pissed off. His face would get red, <laughs> and I would say, you know, Justice Kennedy, his face red. Uh -huh, <laughs> and uh -huh. I still would do that. It, or, you, you know, I would use the word puckishly fairly often with, with uh, Scalia because it fit. Do you think the fact that, and you write about this a lot in the book, the founding sisters of NPR, Linda Wertheimer, you, Cokie Roberts, Susan Stamberg, do you think the fact 
that NPR was so female dominated, especially in the early days, affected the presentational style that public radio has become known for? Hmm, I don't actually think so. I think there was this sort of, I remember once being very pissed off myself because somebody had referred... Your face reddening? My face did not redden, but um, somebody had written something critical about Linda and said that she had a prep school and characterized her voice as a prep school voice. Mm. Now, Linda Wertheimer is from Carlsbad, New Mexico. She is the daughter of grocers. She went to Wellesley on a full scholarship. That ain't no prep school voice. That is Linda Wertheimer's voice. But I do think that because we were women and are women, and because it's radio, you almost can't adopt what I call TV voice, which is... (laughs) it's sort of you have to listen to me because i'm the authority on this and you they actually teach you in tv to shout a little bit because there is video rolling under your voice and people won't hear it unless you shout a bit that's not true of radio and we were the only game in town for radio for radio news of any length so we, I think, always sounded more soft-spoken because we weren't shouting and we were doing longer pieces. And therefore, it had to be, by the nature of the form, a little bit more conversational. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was specifically thinking of Linda. Uh, we know Susan's laugh can cut through anything, and we know that your presentational style, you're a performer, you could be a ham, but Linda, uh, as you know, she's very soft-spoken, I mean, opinionated and fascinating, but she, the actual volume of her voice is just not that loud, even in real life. And the whole idea of, you know, we're, it's an intimate medium where we suck you in, and it's not Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea, I think that <laughs> I think that did play a role in, and I think that listening to This American Life or the things that we associate with public media now, we still hear it today. That would be my opinion. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, of course, we got so, we became mocked for it, right, on on SNL. You have some beautiful balls. (laughs) They're bigger than I expected. I know a lot of people tell me that. Look at that, Terry, the way they glisten. Well, there's no beating my balls. They're made from a secret sweaty family recipe. No one can resist my sweaty balls. <laughs> sweaty balls. Yeah. Sweaty balls, exactly. <laughs> um, but I, I, that, of course, is, a, a, is the ultimate uh, compliment is to get mocked for, for your style. But I think it, it, partly because of what we do it and w- what we do do is so different from uh, what other journalists do, because we still are, in terms of radio, perhaps the only game in town. There are lots of podcasts, but in terms of a radio news program, or in our case, three of them, every day, longish form, uh, we have shorter pieces than we used to when I started at NPR. <laughs> First of all, there was one there was one flagship news program every day, and that was all things considered. It was an hour and a half. It didn't start at four, it started at five. And we sometimes just didn't have enough material for everything to fill the 
the, the, the hole. And I do remember one day Jim Russell tearing downstairs to me and some story had fallen out. And he said, can you... I don't know how to do this. It is a podcast. I guess I can say this. He said, "Do it." <laughs> he said, "Can you shit a two-way <laughs> on anything?" And I said, "Well, the only thing I can think of is what I, is in the first uh, first half hour." He said, "This is the third half hour. You can do it all over again." <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, I wanted to maybe end with asking you a couple questions about the current composition of the court. Uh, composition is not the right word. Sort of the uh, atmosphere around it. There is an argument that the court has lost legitimacy. And I understand you could say that, you know, the majority of conservative justices were appointed by presidents who didn't even get the popular vote, uh, or at least didn't when first elected in the case of George W. Bush. And we all understand how the Constitution works. But in terms of legitimacy, it would probably be good if I our lifetime appointees were appointed by popularly elected people. And then there's the means for which Merrick Garland was denied the nomination, the means for which uh, the nomination, the the um, stated um, ethos of or the stated rules for who gets to actually be nominated was reversed when it came to Amy Coney Barrett. You add that all up and we have this question, this, I think, live question, is the court legitimate? What do you think Ruth would think about that, knowing that she holds the court so dear and wants it to be legitimate, but also understand maybe she would say these are the consequences of political actions playing fast and loose with an institution that we should uh, preserve and hold more dearly. That's what she'd say. Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly what she'd say. And I think that because the rules kept getting changed in the last, you know, uh, say, five to seven years, um, right as she was facing whether or not she could step down, that probably made it even more difficult for her. But some of this happened even after she died in the immediate aftermath of her death because the Barrett nomination was announced immediately after her death. And the the hearings began within a few weeks, and none of that, and this was all just weeks before the election. So that would never have happened before. So I think what you said is what she would say, would have said. And I think that um, it's, you know, I've covered the court now for on and off uh, for some 50 years, I guess. Uh, And I cannot remember any time when there was a clear six to three conservative liberal or liberal conservative majority. Mm -hmm. There were always shuffling alliances uh, over many different kinds of cases and that nothing was... um, 6 3, 6 3, 6 3, 6 3, or occasionally 5 4. And the fact that the Chief Justice, who is a very conservative justice, um, is considered the center of the court now, is tells you a good deal about where we are. Now, the question about legitimacy is not one, interestingly, that any journalist has raised that I know of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rather, it was raised by Justice Kagan. 
in a, several speeches she's made in which she says the court has to earn its legitimacy. And that is remains an open question. And I don't know whether, obviously, she went public with those concerns because she felt she wasn't making any progress with those concerns internally. And that, I think, in and of itself tells you something. Yeah. What do you think the public should want from the Judge Roberts inquiry into the leak of the Dobbs decision? What's in the public interest? Well, I'm not 100% sure. Um, Assuming, as I do, that they have not been able to figure out who was the leak, uh, then I guess they should say that. And my assumption, again, is that if they know who the if they were able to figure out with some certainty who the leak was, that that person would have been held, you know, been, been publicly flayed unless it is a justice or somebody related to a justice. What do you think of lifetime appointments versus, say, a 14-year term for the court? Well, and, you know, I don't spend, a, I think 14 years is a little short, oddly enough, because if you name people to the court who are not 42, and you ought not be naming people to the court who are 42, Uh you ought to be naming people to the court who are in their 50s and who've been around a while. But it still takes most new members of the court at least three years to get accustomed to the workload, the fact that you are the last word on this subject. Your court is the last word. I mean, Justice Breyer said said that to me, has said that to me, and when he be- went to the court, he'd been um, the chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit for, I think, a dozen years or so. And he, you know, he was, uh, God knows he was used to being a judge, but he said it still took him a few years to really get his bearings completely and feel completely confident about what he was doing and how he was doing it. So I think that probably 16 years would be a better number if I were going to Mm -hmm. pick a number, 16 or 18 years. But that said, and at best, it would be best to be staggered so that there were, you know, there were different presidents getting to pick justices at different moments. That said... I think it's quite clear it would take a constitutional amendment to do that, and I do not see that happening any time in my lifetime, or perhaps yours either. And yeah. uh, so I think it's the only way you could change things is to, Congress could, by a major, simple majority vote, add two justices or any number of justices to the court. That's what Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to do and lost in the famous court packing plan. And you know, if you add two this year, and suddenly there's a wave in the other direction, the other party's going to add two more. And pretty soon you're going to have a court of how many people? It does, and, it, and the court talk about losing losing currency. That would not be a good way to, to that doesn't work very well either. So it's, it's a, it really is something of a conundrum when you have a court that is so lopsidedly in one ideological direction. 
And finally, whenever I talk to people who are experts or members of Congress or were members of Congress or who have been watching it for a long time, I haven't heard one lately who said something other than the dysfunction is terrible. It's worse than it's ever been. We need a correction. But I want to ask you about the branch of government that you're an expert on. What's your assessment of the court in terms of where we're headed and the overall dysfunction? How much should we believe that God will indeed save the United States in this honorable court? And how much should we be worried? Well, you know, people did vote for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And he named three members of the court. And the court is now heavily and very ideologically ultra conservative. I think it's probably the most conservative court in about 90 years. Um, And either the court will modify itself, um, in which case some of the pressure to do something will ease, um, or it won't. And it it, it will have enormous consequences on everything from uh, climate change regulations to uh, free speech rights to civil rights laws to uh, the power of the president to make regulations and agencies to make regulations. There's hardly a subject you can think of um, that will not be affected by this court and the composition of the court. And I'm, you know, I tend to always be a little optimistic about the future. And sometimes it doesn't pay to be quite so optimistic. So I think I'll just shut up. Nina Totenberg is NPR's legal affairs correspondent and author now of Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the power of friendships. Thanks so much, Nina. Thank you for having me, Mike. I hope I see you again someday soon. And now the spiel. I don't think I've missed an episode of SNL, Saturday Night Live, in 20 years. It's not that I always love the show. It's more that the show's a social institution. It tells us something about where we are. It often misfires, but... Comedians know they have to ingratiate themselves enough with an audience to elicit laughter. And if you don't have some degree of understanding of the audience's mindset and orientation, you're not going to do that. In other words, they reflect the sensibilities of the audience and have over time. It's a useful barometer in the Belushi era. SNL was rebellious. So were we. Sandler, Chris Farley, they were juvenile and they didn't have to take much seriously, and neither did America during a time of peace, prosperity, and the occasional Clinton sex scandal. Now the tone of SNL is a lot like the attitude of much of the rest of the media, which can be best described as reflexive pessimism, a world weariness and certainty that it's all going to hell. We're just the ones beset by the curse of knowledge. In the opening sketch this past week, cast members sang a Sondheimian lament to drinking yourself happy during the holidays. And you know we can complain about specific people too, like Elon. Why does he own all the stuff? Why does he have to run Tesla and Twitter? Was outer space not enough? All right, that's just one joke. Okay, it was more than one joke. And Hitler, since when did Hitler come back? 
Didn't we basically all agree years ago Hitler should never come back? And why are his new fans black? And I just have to say, I hate this kind of nihilistic, seen-it-all, dog in the cartoon room on fire saying everything is fine kind of attitude. For one thing, that Elon joke, I mean, two and a half years ago, that would be a Trump punchline. Donald Trump was once said to be, and it was a plausible case that he was something like a once-in-a-century, sui generis, mold-breaking, uniquely dangerous threat to all that we valued. But now, Trump has been largely vanquished, diminished at least, rebuked in the midterms. A poll just came out showing him trailing Ron DeSantis by almost 20 points. So is there one sigh of relief? One adjustment attitudinally? No, it's just, well, Ron DeSantis, he's the new uniquely dangerous threat to humanity and society. And Elon Musk, A guy who manages a world-changing car company and mismanages an optional website that 80% of Americans aren't on. Now, he is the stand-in for evil, the unprecedented threat that Trump once was. Just slot him in, and if he slips on ice tomorrow and takes himself off the chessboard, well then, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Samuel Bankman-Fried can take that role. Although, unlike Trump and Elon, MTG and SBF never hosted SNL. So... In general, to sum up this one rather large annoyance that I see everywhere, it's that there is never an acknowledgement that the most dire situations have become less dire, a lot less dire. Let's take COVID, a documented killer of 1.1 million Americans. It has abated now, or at least the deadliness thereof has abated with vaccines. But now we are told to concentrate on long COVID, which is certainly inconvenient to very troubling for those who have it. But COVID's not a documented killer. It's a conceptual complication, which can weaken the system. According to the latest findings, front page findings, long COVID has caused or contributed to the deaths of an average of 1,400 Americans a year. That's bad, but it's one third of 1% of the COVID death rate. That information I just gave you contains statistics and words like death, So it doesn't seem like something we could really rally around. Everything is fine, dog, still seems largely warranted, but the long COVID threat is, statistically speaking, hundreds of times less worrisome than the COVID COVID threat. Now, I know I can't convince people that things are good by pointing out that things are less bad, like the variations of COVID complications are a lot less bad, or the Nazis, what they were joking about there, the Nazis. The ADL's latest stats say that neo-Nazis have killed 14 people over the last decade. That's bad. The paleo-Nazis killed 6 million Jews, 5 million Roma, homosexuals, Russians, Poles, other victims of specific targeted genocides. But again, 14 people in 10 years is bad. And yeah, sure, comparatively a lot less bad than many millions killed, but again, it's still bad. To get us out of this reflexive negativity, I think maybe you have to produce something good. And is America really producing anything good? It's not like we've recently achieved one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. This is one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. Oh, wait, maybe we did. That was Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm yesterday announcing that scientists achieve fusion ignition, meaning a net surplus of energy being created rather than used to initiate a fusion process. Huh? Huh? Okay, but it's fusion. 
Who really understands fusion? It could be hard to really get your head around. And that technology is mostly still potential. It's not as if Americans were undertaking the kind of shared civic and scientific accomplishment that united us in years past to take the signal achievement of American and human progress over the last 50, 60 years, like the moonshot. Except that's exactly what's been going on the last few weeks. Did you notice? Here, speaking three days ago at the news conference to commemorate the phenomenal success of the Artemis 1 moon mission is Emily Nelson, chief flight director for NASA. And then suddenly the picture pops up and it's the most beautiful picture I've seen of Earth as we're coming back to it. And I mean, it, just awe-inspiring, like stunning. You know, one of us notices it and, and points at the screen and everybody else just pauses for a second to just soak in there's a, a ship that has just been at the moon, been farther away than any spacecraft built for humans has ever been, and now it's about to splash down in the Pacific and we get to be here for this. There are amazing achievements happening all around us, and we're busy grousing about an app that you send your selfies to and it generates AI portraits. And I gotta say, really cool AI portraits. I read six articles on this app from Lenza. All were by women. One was by a man, but they were all complaining about the pictures that made them look too sexy. I sent some of Michelle, Peachfish's CEO's, selfies in. We got back 99 amazing pictures. One was really weird. Not too sexy, just like melty-faced. But anyway, if we commissioned 100 talented portrait artists working in different genres, it would have cost us, I don't know, thousands of dollars, months to get the works back. Now it could all be done for $6 in 20 minutes. They were only sexy because Michelle is. I do have to say, unlike her pictures, my Lensa batch did show a little too much nip, which is to say any amount of nip. But I would guess in real life, the reaction to this app was, wow, this is amazing. I'm posting these all over social media. In fact, that was the reaction. And that's what caused the backlash generating headlines like these. MIT Technology Review. The viral AI avatar app Lenza undressed me without my consent. The cut. Why do all my AI avatars have huge boobs. By the way, they showed the pictures of the avatars. They didn't have huge boobs. I would guess that headline is there and the pictures were there because people like looking at and will click on articles that have the promise of huge boobs in them. And I also further think that AI generates its pictures based on the popular things that people click on. So in other words, it might be a Let's call it a virtuous cycle. Some other headlines from TechCrunch. It's way too easy to trick Lenza AI into making NSFW images. Rolling Stone, a psychologist, explains why your hot AI selfies might make you feel worse. Wired, that one had it all. Subhead of that article was the dreamy picture editing AI is a nightmare waiting to happen. I don't want to go too far down the path of that one article, but here's a sample sentence. The potential for AI-generated violence inherent in magic avatars is staggering. The word horror or horrifying appears five times in the article. <sighs> I experienced this app slightly differently. I thought it was a fun way to generate pictures that I shared with friends and my parents, and they all laughed and said something like, wow, that's amazing. I'm not dismissing the concerns of the women who feel pornified, but those concerns were the dominant reaction among those paid to have a reaction in and by the media. Whereas the more modulated representative reaction was something like, oh, that's pretty fun. And something unlike, I have just downloaded Dystopia.
There's a lot of reasons why there's this disconnect between life as lived and life as lived through the anhedonic lens provided by those we contract with to interpret the world for us. Maybe I'm too sanguine. Maybe they took better critical studies courses in the aughts than I did in the 90s. Maybe their surf-like status in the content quarries affords them genuine insight. And I'm just too stupid to be anything other than a lunkhead who takes some pleasure in witnessing a successful space flight or actually likes to look at pictures of my wife looking like a cross between Madonna, Debbie Harry, and a zombie hunter. Maybe because I look at the recent election where most of the MAGA candidates shot themselves in the foot and I think something as unnuanced as, yeah, that's pretty good. Maybe I'm just not being sufficiently vigilant for the next time. But I don't know, Nunnik Americans sometimes vote for dummies. It's sort of like our carnival-going, faith-healing supporter, fellow citizens have always voted for dummies. And you know what? You don't need drinking or pure denialism set to a Sondheim melody just to get through the day. Look up from your screens. Look up to the skies, the stars, or to the future, or to fun activities with your family. And yeah, I will acknowledge, climate change is bad. And I can't believe we have to go through this debt ceiling nonsense every two years. But the bad news isn't an unalloyed bad, and progress is in fact being made. That progress sometimes has serious troubling downsides, like say huge boobs on an AI selfie. But I say competing ideas and attitudes can be held in your head at the same time. I say that to you, and I say that to the dog in the cartoon. That guy's both right and wrong. The room might not be on fire, and not everything, but lots of everything, is fine. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions, and apparently uh, an advanced user of the magic sword of Sakarthi, also a sixth-level enchantress in the forest of Balmork. Anyway, to see Lensa AI art of Peachfish's COO looking fierce and Peachfish's assistant to the regional manager, i.e. me, in some really regrettable settings, go to Pescami or the show's Twitter feed, Pescagist. That's on Twitter, another dystopic website. Yes, of course. I'll try to post them on our Reddit page, too. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. And thanks for listening. Hey, quick plug. If you order from Seasons Eatings now, we can still send out a special sweaty ball sack in time for Christmas. Ooh, great idea. My niece would love a sack of sweaty balls. Mm-hmm.